I'm going to ask you to open up to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to take a look at the book of Isaiah together tonight. So Isaiah 6 will be our text, but then as normal, we'll be surfing through the book. It's a long book. There's a lot here. Obviously, we can only touch on some of the major things together, but we'll try to do that. Isaiah 6 will be our text. Read the whole chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues, tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's God's word for his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for how you reveal yourself in the way of salvation to us in your word. Bless us now as we study it tonight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we come tonight, we've been working our way through the books of the Bible, right? And we've come tonight to the first of the prophets, okay, La- roughly the last third of the Old Testament uh, contains the writings of the prophets whom God sent to His people Israel throughout their history. Now, these aren't the only prophets whom God sent. We've already read about other prophets like Moses, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, and Elisha. Others are mentioned too uh, throughout Old Testament history, but, but these are the prophets at the end of the Old Testament. These are the prophets whose prophecies were written down and, and whose prophecies are recorded for us. And, and each of these ministries, or each of their ministries, I should say, can be categorized around one of four time periods in Israel's history. Some of, some of these prophets prophesied around the time that Israel fell uh, to the Assyrians. That's going to be the case with Isaiah. It's going to be the case with Hosea. Some of them prophesied around the time Judah fell to the Babylonians. Jeremiah is an example of one of these. Others 
prophesied during the dark days of the Babylonian exile, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel uh, specifically. And then finally, some prophesied after the exiles returned to the promised land. And you can think of Malachi, for instance, as one of those who prophesied after the return from exile. So each of these prophets, whose prophecies are recorded for us in the Bible, they ministered in and around one of those four time periods. Now, Isaiah is the first of the prophetic books, and the reason Isaiah is first is because uh, it's the earliest of the major prophets. Okay, the prophetic books can be divided up into the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets, which is uh, the rest of them. Okay, the major prophets are whom I said they were. They're arranged, so the major prophets are arranged chronologically, and the minor prophets are arranged chronologically, uh, as best as scholars um, can assess anyway. There's some debate about the dating of a couple of them, but that's, that's the logic behind the order uh, of the prophets. Lamentations, of course, is attributed to Jeremiah, which is why it's sort of stuffed in there after the book of, of Jeremiah. But anyways, um, that's kind of the, the reason for the ordering of the prophetic books. Anyway, uh, our concern tonight is with the, with the book of Isaiah. And if we look at the first chapter of Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 1, we'll see two important things for understanding the book as a whole. Uh, in the first place, we see the time and place of Isaiah's ministry, right there in verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we learn there when Isaiah ministered. He ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, these four kings would date Isaiah's ministry from about the year 740 B.C. to 700 B.C., so a span of about 40 years he was prophesying uh, to the Israelites. And then we have to ask, where did he minister? Well, he ministered specifically in the southern kingdom of Judah. You'll remember after Solomon, the kingdom split. There was the northern part, which is referred to as Israel, the southern part, which is referred to as Judah. Isaiah ministered in the southern kingdom. His counterpart in the north at this time would have been Hosea. So that's the, that's the when and the where of Isaiah's ministry. Now in chapter 1, we also see the situation in the southern kingdom. During the time of Isaiah, we, we see what Isaiah was up against. The Israelites are in rebellion. Look at verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager, manger, but Israel does not know, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Those verses right there pretty much sums up the situation in Judah during the time of Isaiah. The people have turned their backs on the Lord. Now Isaiah will give some specifics in chapter 1. We'll see him accuse them of 
practicing empty religion in verses 10 through 15. We'll see him accuse them of not caring for the orphans and widows among them in verse 23. But the ultimate problem in Israel, the problem that gives rise uh, to these other sins that Isaiah exposes throughout the book is simply this. It's a failure to trust in God. Okay, in Isaiah's day, the Israelites were putting their trust in all the wrong places. One of those wrong places was in other gods. We see this in chapter 2.8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. We see it in chapter 41, verse 22. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Isaiah 57 verse 6. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. So the people of Israel were trusting in idols, trusting in other gods. They were also trusting in what we might call sorcery today. Uh, this is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? But that's not all. Israel was also trusting in other nations. Okay, Isaiah prophesied at a Big, bad Assyria was threatening. During Isaiah's ministry, they, the Assyrians had run over the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were knocking on the door of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah accuses the people of going to Egypt for help against the Assyrians rather than to their God. This is in chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. And then in chapter 39, we see King Hezekiah buddy up with the Babylonians, and this too is a problem. This costs Israel dearly, right? But anyway, they're, they're trusting in other nations. But even that's not all. We also see in the book of Isaiah the people trusting in themselves and in their own strength and in their own wisdom. Isaiah twenty-two, eleven: You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. And so this is the fundamental problem in Isaiah's day. Yes, there are the people are practicing injustice, and they are, they are certainly not worshiping God with their heart. Their religion is empty, but it all, it all goes back to this. They're putting their trust in all the wrong places. Other gods, sorcerers, other nations, or themselves. And what Isaiah wants them to understand, what Isaiah labors to make clear throughout this book, is that God alone, God alone 
is to be trusted. This is seen well in chapter 40. I'm going to begin at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter, but this is sort of the message that Isaiah wants to get across to the people. He says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God? The creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That is what Isaiah wants to get across. The Lord and the Lord alone is the one you are to trust. To trust in anything else is foolishness. It's foolishness. The Lord and the Lord alone is God and is to be trusted. Let me give you a brief, brief outline of the book. Very, very brief. It's a long book. We could get a very detailed outline. I don't want to do that. It's going to be broken up into four parts. Part 1 consists of chapters 1 through 35. Here Isaiah deals with Jerusalem primarily during the Assyrian threat. The Assyrians are knocking on the door, and that's kind of when Isaiah is ministering. Here we see him call out God's people for their sins and also proclaim judgment on all the nations to whom Israel was looking for help. Part 2 is just chapters 35 through 39. This is kind of a transition in the book. Here Isaiah prophesies about the future threat of exile into Babylon, right? The Assyrian threat um, goes away, but, but Isaiah says there's, there's going to be another threat, and it's going to be much more consequential for you. The Babylonians are going, to, are going to carry you away. Part three runs from chapter 45 to 55, and here Isaiah is looking ahead towards the end of the Babylonian exile. There's, there's a note of hope in this section, right? He's looking ahead towards the end. And then part four consists of chapters 56 to the end of the book. And here we read about the continuing failure of Israel and her relationship with God, but we also read about the the grand and glorious future 
that God has planned for his people. In fact, the book ends by pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Almost the very last verses in Isaiah speak about the, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's, that's way out in the distant future. So we might say that, that uh, in chapters 1 through 35, uh, Isaiah is sort of dealing with the matter right in front of him. In chapters 35 through 39, he's looking ahead a little further. Uh, in chapters 40 through 55, he's looking ahead a little further yet. And then in chapters 66, or 56 through 66, he's looking way out, way out, right, to the end of all things, to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what are the main themes? What are the main themes? Well, without a doubt, the concept of God's holiness lies at the center of everything in this book. Okay, in this book, we've seen this in some of the passages we've already read together tonight. In this book, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel 30 times. He's only given that title six other times in the entire Old Testament, but he's called that 30 times here in the book of Isaiah. That's his favorite title for God. God is the Holy One of Israel. And the significance of this title, really, uh, needs to be understood in light of Isaiah chapter 6. That's the passage we read at the outset. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet recounts for us his commissioning. And in this episode, we see, perhaps more than anywhere else in all the Bible, what it means that God is holy. We read the whole thing at the outset. Let me just read for you the first six verses again. Just listen closely and kind of hear what this says about God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. By the way, the way Isaiah sets that up right there, the people were putting their trust in King Uzziah. They thought King Uzziah was great, and Isaiah's like, oh yeah, King Uzziah died, but the Lord was seated. That's kind of what he's doing there. The Lord is the one that you're to trust. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then look what Isaiah says. This is so enlightening. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then we're told about one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Okay, we could spend hours, I think, on those verses, but this is the episode that is on Isaiah's mind throughout the book. This is the episode that is on Isaiah's mind when he calls God the Holy One of Israel, and this is the episode on his mind as he calls Israel out for her sin. He's saying, friends, this rebellion is no laughing matter for the simple reason that God is holy. God is holy. Now, because God is holy, Isaiah makes two things clear. We might call these lesser themes in the book, but they, they certainly come under that main umbrella that God is holy. 
First, he makes it clear that because God is holy, he must judge his people for their sin. Isaiah 5, 11 through 16. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Because God is holy, he must judge his people for their sin. He can't ignore it. He can't pretend like it's not there. He can't overlook it. No, he must, he must deal with it. His holiness demands it. Secondly, though, Isaiah makes it clear that because God is holy, neither will he abandon his people. Because he's holy, he will not cast them off. No, he will remain faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, and he will preserve a remnant. Isaiah 59, 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Isaiah 62, 12, they will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. So because God is holy, he must judge their people for his sin, for their sin. But at the same time, because he's holy, he refuses to abandon them. He refuses to cast them off. He refuses to annul those covenant promises he made to Abraham long before. And so we see this note, too, that God says, no, I will, I will judge them, but so will I redeem them. And that leads us to the Christ focus. Right? How do we see our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah? Well, the fact is, as you, as you read this book, you'll realize, as you read it, that God's promise of redemption for His people becomes focused on kind of a mysterious figure. It's almost like God is saying to his people, listen, do you really want someone to trust? You've trusted in kings, you've trusted in yourselves, you've trusted in other nations, right? Do you really need something or someone to trust? Well, here's someone to trust. Here's someone to trust. This, this redemption becomes focused in a figure. And in the first half of the book, we, we read about this mysterious figure whom the Lord will give his people. We're told in chapter 7 that he will be born of a virgin and will be called Emmanuel. And then in chapter 9, we find out that this child will be a king. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government to peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever and ever. And then in chapter 32, we read about this king again. Isaiah says, see, a king will reign in righteousness. 
Right? So in the first half, the mysterious figure is this, this child who is a king. But then as the book goes on, it almost seems like this king, you kind of wonder what happens to this king. Because beginning at chapter 50, we, we, we begin reading about another figure. This one's not a king, he's a, he's a servant. And he's a servant who would be obedient to God in every way, yet who would suffer and who would die for the sins of the people as he's pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. Now again, we come to the servant and we wonder, what, what happened to the king? What, what happened to the king? Who's this servant? Who's this servant? Of course, we find out in the New Testament, the suffering servant is the king. It's kind of like in Revelation 5 when John is told, See, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then he looks up and he sees a lamb looking as if it's been slain. And it's like, what happened to the lion? I thought he was a lion. But that's just it. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. So it is in the book of Isaiah. We read about a king named Emmanuel who would reign on David's throne forever and ever and who would rule with justice and righteousness. And then as the book goes on, we wonder whatever happened to this king. Where did he go? But here he is in Isaiah 53. The king is the suffering servant. The suffering servant is the king. And, of course, it's through this servant king, this king servant, that God would redeem his people. It's through this servant king that he would make atonement for their sins, even as he made atonement for Isaiah's through that hot coal on his lips. That's sort of the the deal there in that whole episode, right? Someone said to me recently, or I heard, I shouldn't say someone said to me, I heard someone say recently that the gospel is God with us. It's Emmanuel. And I pushed him on this a little bit. I said, really? Really? Is that good news? Because Isaiah didn't think that was very good news when God was with him, did he? What did he say? Woe to me! I'm ruined! From a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. It was bad news until atonement was made, until the hot coal touched his lips, and the seraphim said, See, your sin is atoned for. That points to the cross. Right? That points to the cross. Right? The truth of, of God with us, bad news apart from the cross. The truth of Jesus is Lord, bad news apart from the cross. Right? And we see that going on here in the book of Isaiah. How, how is the Holy One of Israel going to, going to live with these, these sinful people for all eternity? How is, he, how is he going to be both just and how is he going to be both merciful, right? That's, that's the problem in the book of Isaiah. How is he going to keep his promises that he made to Abraham? How is he going to redeem a people? How is he going to pour out his wrath on their sin? We have no idea. And now we find out. He was crushed for their iniquities. He was pierced for their transgressions. The punishment that brought them peace was upon him. Little, it's a little blurry as you read it just on Isaiah's end, right? It comes into focus more clearly in the New Testament. 
But that's where we see Jesus, right? That's that's where we we see Jesus. He's the mysterious figure spoken about throughout the book of Isaiah through whom God redeems his people. In Luke 4, Jesus is, is speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. And he begins reading from the 61st chapter saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke tells us, I wish I could have been there. I think this would have been awesome. Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and everyone stared at him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is, I am the one Isaiah spoke about. He's all throughout the book. He's all throughout the book. He is is the mysterious figure through whom God would redeem his sinful, wayward people. Finally then, what's what's a contemporary application we can draw from the book of Isaiah? That's a tough question. It's a long book. There's a lot of applications we can draw, but I'll just leave the application to the book of Isaiah Listen to, these, listen to these passages. Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead, plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 33.15, He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder, And shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights. Isaiah 51, 7. Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have my law in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. Isaiah 56, 1. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. Isaiah 64, 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right who remember your ways. The book of Isaiah calls the people of God to do right. To do right. Now, the fact is, we haven't done right. We haven't. There's only one who has. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. As Isaiah says, him and him alone is the one who acted wisely. He and he alone deserves to be called the righteous servant. But the good news of the gospel is that this righteous servant has indeed justified many. And more than that, this righteous servant's spirit resides within all who believe in his name. Isaiah 27, 6 says, In days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. That's what we're called to do. We're called to fill the world with with the fruit of God's kingdom. God has given us the spirit of his righteous servant in order that we might do just that. And so in closing tonight, I ask, are you filling the world with the sweet, precious fruit that comes from knowing and trusting the Lord? Or are you filling the world with the bitter fruit that comes from trusting in all the wrong things? Let's pray together. Lord God, We praise you for the servant king, the king's servant, the child who was born, our Emmanuel, 
who suffered for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, who justified many. We thank you for the life, the salvation, the grace that is ours in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be like him in this world as you fill us with his spirit. Help us to maintain justice. Help us to do right. For Jesus' sake, amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. We're going to close with holy, holy, holy. Number 262 in the blue book. 262, and we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 4. 1, 3, and 4 of 262.